Hey everybody, Shane here. Before we get into the episode today, I wanted to give a little bit of a PSA here up front. Just a few short days after we recorded this episode, the city of New York asked all of the Broadway shows in the city to shut down as part of a broader effort to slow the spread of COVID-19 here in the U.S. and globally. Well, this was certainly the right decision, it does mean that many of those who work on those shows and produce much of the art we all love are out of work for the foreseeable future. As you will hear later in this episode, we are huge proponents of supporting the arts and the artists, musicians, singers, dancers, creatives, and all those who support them behind the scenes. As such, we encourage you to help if you can in whatever ways you are able to. Reach out to your creative friends and offer your support. Share and donate to their GoFundMe campaigns. Buy tickets now to their future and rescheduled shows and encourage your friends to do the same. Buy their art, buy their music, buy their merchandise, visit their Etsy stores, whatever you can to support them. Another good thing you can do is go and donate to organizations like MusiciansFoundation.org and other organizations that are stepping up in this time to support artists, musicians, and other creatives. If you love their art, or if you love art at all, be sure and be there for them now, and it'll help make sure that that art keeps existing in the future. We'll make sure to have links to some of these organizations in the show notes. In the meantime, enjoy this amazing interview with Drew Gasparini. Thanks again. Technobiotic. Songs are so important to create empathy in theater. And again, it's about bridging that gap. And shows like Hamilton and shows being written by Sarah Bareilles like Waitress are just helping this audience kind of get funneled in to theater where they get the greatest example of intelligence and empathy. Not just the clever stuff, not just the well-versed, not just the well, the, the proper technique, not just following the rules kind of theater, but the theater that is more like a, let's just open our vein and see how much truth we can bleed out and you guys soak up what you want. That's what I like to see theater as. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast, Episode 6. Join us on our journey of finding humanity among technology with your hosts, Laura Araujo, Shane Carlson, and sitting in for Matt Drew. Charles Araujo. We are joined by a special guest, Drew Gasparini. Hello and welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. I'm Shane Carlson, one of your co-hosts. I'm joined today by my fellow co-host, Laura Araujo, and a special guest host today, Mr. Charles Araujo, who some of you may remember from our first episode. Charlie, Laura, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> Great to have you guys. How you guys been? I understand you guys just got back to New York from uh, California last week. Charlie, you're celebrating your dad's, what was it, 70th birthday? 70 big years. And I don't know, I know this probably makes me feel like totally egocentric, but it made me feel old. I don't know, just something about your dad turning 70, just like, oh gosh. But no, it was a great tip. It was... He looks like he, he aged well at 70 years old. He looked pretty good. I, I almost thought he was your younger brother. That that's what uh, the the hope. That's I my got. only hope. I was gonna say that's my only hope. <laughs> it, you know, just bet on those genetics. That's the only thing we really have going for us at the end of the day when we strip everything else away. Exactly. So, perfect. So Charlie, tell us a little bit. What do you what have you been out there doing in the technology world the last few weeks since we last spoke? Oh, I would love to say things change that dramatically, uh, that quickly, that dramatically, but but not really. It's a lot of the same same thing. I mean, the, the most interesting thing is with all this coronavirus stuff going around, all my trips have been canceled. So I'll get to enjoy spring in New York for a change. So that will be exciting. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that all is going. Uh, you know, but of course, we're, we're continuing to work on on all the stuff we've been working on. So the Your Digital Future stuff is trying to make sure the, the weekly cadence there. Laura and I are continuing to work on all the maps stuff. So uh, keeping busy on all fronts. Perfect. Yeah, I'm getting uh, really excited, waiting for you guys to launch the map site and all the map stuff. Yeah, I guess being being on the inside a little bit and hearing what you guys are working on, it makes makes my appetite whetted for for what you guys have coming. So I'm really looking forward to that. Speaking of that coronavirus, uh, you know, I'm in the same boat. I haven't had to travel in about three weeks or so. It's been interesting, getting a little getting a little itchy to to go somewhere and do something. My wife's glad to have me home on one hand, and I think on the other hand, she's ready to to send me off somewhere, probably to a coronavirus hot zone uh, if, I, if I keep it up and keep annoying her. 
We have a guest today. Uh, we have a gentleman by the name of Drew Gasparini, who uh, some of you may know from some of his uh, work in the musical theater world and some of the hits he's working on. But I'm most excited for what he's doing in the future here, which is putting together the music for the Karate Kid musical. And as a as a Generation Xer, I think I, I warned Drew before we started the interview that the, that's a sacred tome, and he has a great responsibility <laughs> in his hands with this one. But do a quick intro here, Drew, and then we'll get to chatting with him. Drew is a award-winning musical theater composer and lyricist. He's a musician and a songwriter, also a comedian, which uh, if you've listened to some of his more comedic works, you'd you'd understand the moniker of comedian, and I would definitely agree with it. But he's also a teacher, and I think I like to honor folks who label themselves as teachers, especially when they teach outside of the traditional kind of K through 12 higher education spaces, mainly because someone who takes on the the moniker of a teacher definitely is is uh, typically a lot more empathetic. They're looking to give back to something, especially something that they see is worth investing in, worth kind of growing. So, Drew, welcome. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here, Shane. And hi, everybody. Hello. You heard me mention the fact that the Karate Kid is a, a Generation X, you know, kind of sacrosanct thing. Yeah, I and I know that's a... I knew that's a great responsibility, and the the two large gentlemen in the uh, the very nice Italian suit standing outside your door, uh, you know, <laughs> just ignore them. They're just there to protect you. You mean the guy sure with they... swinging a baseball bat into his other hand? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, Ch- Charlie and I are of a similar generation, so I know Charlie probably understands the the value that the Karate Kid movies, uh, sure. you know, had had to us. I think you know each of us I'm at one almost point. Almost ashamed to admit how much of an impact that movie may have had on me. So I, you know, and, and I'm always I'm always nervous when they get turns into a musical. So I'm very excited that it was in your hands, Drew. Oh, that makes me very happy. I have, I mean, I the, the, here's how much respect I have for the Karate Kid. You ready? Here it is. When it was offered to me, I rolled my eyes and said, that sounds like a horrible idea. That is how much the Karate Kid means to me. <laughs> and I want, and I try to make that clear to everybody. There's, I mean, you know, I, I don't, it's not like I just discovered the internet, but boy, have I discovered what trolling is since the announcement came out that the Karate Kid is happening. And uh, I like that I'm getting these little podcasts and things like that to create this platform where I can say, guys, of course, it sounds like a bad idea. Of course it does. But I promise that we are taking the title seriously. We are taking the story seriously. All of the quotable, amazing parts of the movie are all there. And it's still the same amazing story. Only this time it has a badass score that I wrote. And I'm not just saying it's badass because I wrote it. My mom also told me so. So sit on that. (laughs) So I just want to know what the the wax on wax off musical sequence is going to look like. That's that's the inside scoop I want. It's a giant tap number with a kick line. A bunch of girls come out from the sides. <laughs> All right. No. We're trying. Yeah, I, was uh, we're picturing, trying... I was picturing a DJ with two decks. Yeah, know? exactly. Doing wax on wax off. Oh man. Yeah. You know, Charlie, before we got too far, I did want to mention that, you know, I, I, I too also feel the impact of Karate Kid, but you, you're looking a lot more Pat Morita than Ralph Macchio these days. <laughs> I just... That was a very cruel, unfair statement, Shane. I, oh, I, it was not. meant to. No, it was meant to be a compliment. Him being the mentor and the elder statesman, you know, growing the younger generation. Wisdom. Uh, you look like you're full of wisdom. Exactly. He, oh, yes. A nice recovery, Shane. Good job. All right. Uh, hey, if I if I can't spend at least two minutes investing in giving you a hard time after all these years on the podcast, you know, what, what's the point of friendship? Well, well, as a as the resident boomer, I uh, I watched the Karate Kid once. I don't think I watched it very seriously, so I can't say that it really had an impact on me. But as a singer and an artist and and teacher myself, I'm always very trepidatious hearing that a very commonly known movie or book has been turned into a musical because most of the time it's a bunch of crap. Knowing a little bit about your work and having sung some of your work and appreciating your authenticity, I'm very excited to to see how this uh, unravels on stage. Well, I really appreciate you saying all that. That's very kind of you to say so. I hope I I hope I live up to whatever expectations you have (laughs) with me. Well, I'll let you know. All right. All right. I want the honesty. If, if anyone doubts that, then they're not paying attention. So, yes. 
So, so Drew, I, okay, so I do have a serious question here with yes, you please. on this, though. I, I mean, in, in, in the entertainment business, the sort of remake is a bit of a trope. But I think when it comes to musical theater interpretation of movies, it's a little bit of um, a, a more maybe more relevant to the work that, that we all are talking about and doing here. And that is that, that so much of what we do, uh, particularly from a, a business standpoint, is in fact reinterpretation. It's about taking something that's been a longstanding idea or a concept and sort of trying to reinterpret it for our modern era, for whatever situation we might be facing. And in many ways, I would say that what you were having to do with this iconic piece of, of film is is sort of analogous. And so I'm curious the process that you go through. I mean, you talked about how you started by saying it's a bad idea. What process did you use to sort of transform it into what was a bad idea to what we all hope now is a fabulous idea when you're done with it? Of course. Yeah, because, you know, there's there's a lot of pressure when there's a title as big as The Karate Kid. There's a really big understanding uh, right away of the pop culture impact it had. I always say it's kind of like The Beatles, like, even if you were born after the era of the Karate Kid, you still have this weird, like, understanding of how big it was. Like, just whenever you, if you were born at any time after the Beatles, you just know how important the Beatles are. You know what I mean? So in this recreation of something, the idea is not just to live up to the expectation of what it was, but to create something that stands completely on its own. And I rephrase it because I think this, the thing that I roll my eyes at is, the Karate Kid, the musical, but I wanna make it more this musical, The Karate Kid, a thing that really stands on its own, but still captures the essence of what worked very well the first time. And I think that's, that's kind of the conceit with a lot of advancements, whether it's in technology or in art or something, you take what worked and you build upon that. So I think that's really what we're trying to do in the recreation of the Karate Kid is really make it a recreation. Like I said, the, the parts of the story that are working, the beautiful relationship between Mr. Miyagi and Daniel, all those important touchstone moments are all going to be there, but we're going to enhance it so it can still live in the 80s, but talk to a uh, Gen Z or millennial crowd as well because it's not about there's this idea of theater being a very exclusive world and my idea of theater is bridging the gap my idea of musical theater is never this sondheim-esque nose in the air mentality it's more of a giant jacuzzi that we should all be sitting in together uh and so i think with with enhancing the story and putting songs in it uh, what we're doing is making it palatable for everybody even if they're not necessarily quote unquote a theater person that's the intent, so at least, when you recreate. So you're just teasing your next project, Jacuzzi the Musical? Is that what I got? Jacuzzi the Musical. The Jacuzzical, of course. Time machine. The <laughs> <laughs> See, anytime somebody says everybody in the hot tub, all I can picture is the uh, the, the Will Ferrell SNL skit. You know, oh, with the come lovers. on. That's so good. <laughs> We're going to have to drop the link to that in the show notes for this show. Although I, I will say I'm a little disappointed. I am a huge Sondheim fan. Again, as, as a boomer, you know, you could empathize. Um, <laughs> uh, and also as a, as a recovering classical singer, but of um, part of, part of, I think what you're talking about is maybe uh, bringing back to life in a new way, The Karate Kid is about bringing empathy into the show. That's in my, in my opinion, a lot of what musical theater allows for. Uh, a lot of what you're talking about with, with the you know nose in the air sort of mentality of a lot of this other repertoire, the Sondheim repertoire especially, or, or, or classical rep, uh, is that it, it lacks the rawness, the realness, the humanness. Um, that I think uh, I think a lot of musical theater, especially contemporary musical theater, really lives up to. I would love to hear a little bit about how you feel like this Karate Kid is allowing for a little bit more empathy, and maybe how your process of creating is of creating musical theater in general is allowing for empathy to be brought back into the conversation that people are having. Just for the record, anybody who's out there hating me because I said Sondheim is part uh, of the exclusive <laughs> club, I, I I love Stephen Sondheim. I love every Sondheim musical that's ever been written. I love it. But let's. I want to use that as an example. It's okay. Time heals everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a there's a great example right here where if you see documentaries or interviews with Stephen Sondheim, he's very open about the fact that like he'd written 
West Side Story. He'd written the lyrics, these romantic lyrics to West Side Story and things like that. But he had never truly felt like he was in love until he was in his 60s. So how does he empathize with people falling in love? So when I say the nose in the air, it's about something being so smart that you can't swallow it. Do you know what I mean? Something that is so beyond the uh, normal grasp of intelligence and cleverness is where Sondheim comes from. I have made myself fall in love by the age of nine so I could understand what those deep and rich emotions felt like because that way when I write it, I feel like it's coming from a true place, not necessarily a clever place. Do you see what I mean by that? And I think by incorporating more of that into musical theater. We have shows like Dear Evan Hansen and Next to Normal that was on Broadway. And, it, and they spoke on really taboo issues at the time, mental health and, and things of that nature. But it created this weird, like somehow music infused this weird connectivity between the audience and what was going on on stage. And you look at a show like Karate Kid and you can think of that story. But the one thing you might not be thinking about is oh my God, a single mother, oh my God, an angsty teen. Those aren't the first thing that comes to mind. A guy who was a senior in high school and that's when his mom decided to move him across the country and start all over. And what that actually feels like. We wanna get right to the relationship with Miyagi. We wanna get right to the crane kick. We wanna get right to wax on, wax off. But if we miss those really important uh, emotional character moments, musical theater will fall flat. And that's where I think adaptations really suffer. You could just copy and paste a movie, but we're just getting what we got from the movie. When with a song, we can dive into the psyche a little bit and understand that character beat for beat what they're thinking without drawing it out into a big scene. Songs are so important to create empathy in theater. And again, it's about bridging that gap. And shows like Hamilton and shows being written by Sarah Bareilles like Waitress are just helping this audience kind of get funneled in to theater where they get the greatest example of intelligence and empathy not just the clever stuff, not just the well-versed, not just the, well, the, the proper technique, not just following the rules kind of theater, but the theater that is more like a, let's just open our vein and see how much truth we can bleed out and you guys soak up what you want. That's what I like to see theater as. So I think that's the approach with Karate Kid is really finding those angsty moments. You know, there's that moment in the movie where Mr. Miyagi is, I'm talking so much, I'll stop right after this. Uh, but there's this moment in the movie where Mr. Miyagi is drunk and he's sing he's talking to his his dead wife, right? And that's a really key moment. That's the moment that got Pat Morita his Oscar nomination. And people forget that he was nominated for an Oscar for that role. And I want to bring the same sincerity. They I hear that they almost cut that scene from the movie. Can you imagine losing that depth of Mr. Miyagi? He would just be this tool used to yeah. he'd just be Yoda with no emotional depth. You know what I mean? So now that we have the power of music, we give Miyagi Okinawan culturally accurate music to back his entire story up. It's going to elevate the entire thing. Empathy is the rule of thumb throughout. I think that's the key to success in musical theater and in storytelling. I would agree wholeheartedly. And I, there's a couple of things I want to unpack in, in what you just said. The first piece is that empathy, right? Yeah. And you mentioned storytelling. Humans by nature, we are creatures who love narrative. We love the, the sentimentality of music, mm -hmm. uh, which really is just you know storytelling with rhythm. We love being part of a narrative. We love hearing narratives that connect us to these emotional moments and, and memories that we have. And you talk about the the empathy in connecting to the characters and how music is a pathway to to getting that connection. And I think back, it's there's a lot of movies I remember from my youth that that you view through a certain lens of the experience you have at that time. And Karate Kid is one of them, right? I identified so much with Ralph Macchio's character in Karate Kid. Mm -hmm. You know, the moving around, the being the new kid, the being the outsider, finding trying to find a path in and learning. When I watch that movie now. I identify far more with Mr. Miyagi. I identify far more with, with his mother. I even identify with the other adults from Cobra Kai and things mm -hmm. of that nature in, because of the lens of the experience that I have. And so it's very interesting to me as you start to look at things through the lens of these human 
connectedness moments. And the fact that in musical theater, you can bring the music in to dive deeper into those points that were just plot advancement mechanisms in the movie. So talk for a minute, if you could, about when you're creating music for those moments, what are you looking at it as? What is what is the emotion in some of those things that you're trying to invoke in the people that are going to be sitting in that audience who remember the movie, has this, have this frame of reference, and are looking for stimulation points, if you will, around kind of those similar emotions that they carried with them? Well, for instance, there's a really key moment in the... I'll just use this as an example that maybe will help color the entire thing in. There's a moment in the movie when Daniel... I think it's the first time he gets beat up. I think it's the first time Johnny kicks his ass. And he's got his bike and he just throws it against a dumpster and he just starts cursing it out and he's just pissed off, right? The scene ends right after that. Like, that's the end of that entire moment. But in my eyes, it's like, what? He's a, first of all, he's a teenager who's hormonal as hell, who's in a new place. Why was that the end of that moment? Because it wasn't a musical. But with the musical aspect of this, we can sit there for three minutes and really hear why he felt like he needed to boil over to the point that he throws his, he trashes his own bike. You know what I mean? What pushes him to get to that moment? Not just show it. We can find all of our ways in by watching a movie and seeing the action and seeing the despair. But I think I'm, I'm trying to find moments that aren't such low-hanging fruit that the audience gets it right away and they need the song to help them understand the character. You know what I mean? I think Daniel is such a cog in a wheel unless he is, he's a whiny teenager, unless you understand his plight. And just by stating what he's going through, that doesn't always help. you got to put it in his language. How would he say it to you if he was in a therapy session? Do you know what I mean? I think that's what I'm trying to find in a character. What would they say if they were on a couch with a doctor and they, they felt like they had that liberty and that openness to do so? Because just because they're singing, it doesn't mean they're singing to someone in the scene. It doesn't mean they're singing for anybody but themselves. It's just a monologue some of the time. You know what I mean? So when I'm finding those empathetic moments, I'm just finding the moments where I feel like they have more to say. They just never got around to it. And we can dive a little deeper in there. One of the things that's interesting is um, two facets of what we're talking about here. One is the storytelling element that I think is incredible. And I think I'm, I'm actually really happy to see that in the business world, there is this growing appreciation for the art of storytelling and why it's so important. But when you get there, you're you're hitting on one of the roadblocks, and that is that to be a good storyteller requires that degree of empathy. And and sort of the point you're making is I, I actually just finished writing an article. It's going to get published this week about um, why empathy is so important in the digital era. And Laura and I were discussing the article and and talking about how you know the the definition of empathy is being able to have this sort of shared experience. And most of us talk about, you know, Shane was just talking a second ago about the fact that now he's, he's lived more life. He has more experience and therefore that allows him to sort of empathize or connect with these other characters. But you're describing the ability to create empathy almost out of thin air where you can't empathize with Mr. Miyagi. You, you aren't don't have that shared background. And yet you were able to create it, but to actually create that sense of empathy by putting yourself into his character, so to speak. And, and, and I found that fascinating as you're saying it, because I think that's a skill that we all actually need to develop is how do we become empathetic with somebody that we maybe don't have a shared experience with. And so I'm curious the process that you use. I feel like that's a twofold process because what Charlie's talking about is the empathy that you're writing into the characters and into the story. But as a performer, as the people who are the conduits for the music, that's that's a choice that they have to make moment by moment to embody that empathy or to not. And that's our humanness. We We can choose to remain in that empathy or not, if it's feeling too challenging for us, if we are in character or not. But I think it's it's beyond the the idea of remaining in character. I think I think that skill that you're talking about, empathy, but beyond empathy, communicating that empathy is is more than just remaining in character. Well, yeah. So I'm just curious how you go how you go through that process to sort of because again, you know, I, I look at the world through this business lens, and I think there's a lot of folks from a business perspective that may struggle with this idea of empathy because they say, I don't relate. I don't relate to these, maybe these employees that I have in mind. I haven't, right. they live a very different life than mine. Right. And, and so you, because of the type of work you're doing are having to do this. And so I'm just curious how you accomplish it. 
it can be very wearing because if your job is to kind of create those moments for characters that are not your own, you're still investing so much of your own emotion to, you know, like you're giving parts of yourself to these moments you're inventing and these characters that you're helping develop and create. There's always a fine line of being empathetic and being a full-on empath. Because when it comes to day-to-day -day stuff, I will totally be the shoulder you can cry on, but I need to be able to give it back to you at the end of the conversation. Otherwise, we're all going to wear down. So like my approach to the work is I have to treat it like work. I have to treat it like a job. And I think like in most careers, the reason you end up in a career, the reason you choose a career is because you have whatever the superpower is that makes you a viable choice for that career. And I think uh, finding a, a way into people's emotions and having empathy towards what someone might be going through, even though I've never experienced it myself, is a little superpower that I've developed ever since I started writing music. And I started writing when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. So I've been, it's it's been a skill like anything else to establish the idea of empathy. And I think because it's something I focus on day to day, it's much more prevalent in my life. And I fully agree with you that everybody outside of a storytelling position or career path should really establish Talk about a superpower. I think empathy truly is a superpower. And especially in the digital age, when we are so reliant on technology, we are losing a lot of touch with that human connectivity. And that is what empathy is based on. So that's why there's such a clutch need for musical theater and these stories to be told. It's almost this weird human reminder we're all in this together. We can keep feeling each other's things and be okay when someone feels something. You know what I mean? Otherwise, we're going to get to this weird point in the, the technological advancement in the future where it's going to be weird when someone tells you their problems. And I think that's yeah. a very strange future to be living in. Totally. Music and art is definitely something that I think speaks to not only our, us as individuals, but also that human connectedness that you talked about. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. there's a double-edged sword with technology when it comes to art and the sharing of art. One, it's easier to find out about these things. It's easier to see them. It's easier to experience them. I was recently in London and happened to go to the British Museum for the first time after multiple trips to London and spent some time just being there. Yeah. experiencing. And one of the things I realized is it's one thing to see someone, you know, if I, all the pictures I post of the British Museum while I'm visiting it on Facebook is, is great for the people who aren't there with me to see this thing that's happening in this moment. But one of the things I found that being there and being around all those other people and having this connection to this art that literally is a, a link to the past, a link to other human beings and the things that they wanted, felt was important enough to express to the people around them was overwhelming. Uh, yeah. You know, literally after about two hours, I didn't get, I probably got through 20% of the museum, but after two hours, it was overwhelming. I literally could not absorb any more because of that empathetic piece that you talked about. Right. Right. And this is something that at 18 years old, I would have walked in there and thought, oh, that's a bunch of cool junk. Right. Right. But now at, at oh, not quite 50 years old, it's different, right? You, you carry the, the weight of your own experiences and your emotions and your touch points with art and human connectedness. And that stuff becomes heavy. And so I, I appreciate your differentiating between empathy you know, mm -hmm. in terms of putting yourself in the in the shoes of these characters to connect to the emotions that they're experiencing and carrying their emotions with you. Yeah. So I'm happy to hear that we're not going to see you in a New York Post walking around with a rising sun do rag on your yeah. head, you know, really getting into the mind of these I'm characters. I'm a writer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and if I can just translate and, and confirm this for me, because what I heard just uh, what I heard you say, and, and again, this is to me a great learning thing, because as Laura will tell you, I as much as I may write about it, I sometimes struggle with empathy myself. Is it, you know, you're, you're sitting here nodding your head. Yeah, you're um, big you know, nod right now. <laughs> and, you know, what I heard you really say is that that your your kind of your secret sauce to this superhero capability is is finding those little elements of your even if you haven't shared that exact experience, finding elements in your own life that were similar enough that allow you to kind of create that connection where you're yeah. able to effectively find it. And that's something that I probably struggle with. And so I think it's a great sort of practical tip of, of how we develop this empathy on a more, you know, day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And you know what? Life is stressful enough. And if you can avoid frustrations, a big way to do it is, is just understand everybody else's frustrations so you don't get frustrated at them. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you just have an understanding, why are they overreacting? Oh my God. Oh, they're probably having a bad day. You just, everything feels easier once you start empathizing that way. <laughs> right. Indeed. 
So, okay, I want to dig. I want to dig a little bit deeper there. So, this is like from the perspective of a creative person, coming back to that same idea of being empathetic, but not being an empath, not being sucked into the rabbit hole of being consumed in all of these emotions of people around us. Because as creatives, at least you know my my own self, I'm tempted. I'm inclined a lot of times to drink deeply all of the different feelings, all of the different situations that I possibly can to, uh, to have that experience, to add them to my toolbox so that I can indeed empathize with other people, so that I can communicate things in an effective and affective way. Specifically speaking about that, that relationship as a creative, because maybe there will be a couple of creatives who might listen to this podcast today. We're <laughs> all creatives. What do you mean? Yeah. Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> What is your practice? As I like to say, the practice, your key, your tool, your your day-to-day uh, practice for finding that balance between remaining human and vulnerable and emotional and authentic, at the same time, keeping safe space for self amidst all of this constant comparison and judgment and, and inclination to just be this big pot of feeling all the time. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, it's it's just finding the time to to be good to yourself. When I was in my 20s and I was like working all this out and trying to find the career path, you oversaturate yourself with, you. it sounds weird to say, but you oversaturate yourself with opportunity, with meeting new people, and then you're taking on everything and then you're, you're developing your superpowers and empathy and all that kind of stuff. And then the older you get and, the, and then you start reprioritizing what's important in your life, I really have to keep certain things part of the job or the career and then the things that keep me sane and keep me on earth because it's easy to vacuum yourself and write in a tunnel and and not leave that space it's really easy to do that i make sure to set reminders on my phone text your mom text your dad every morning i meditate for 20 minutes i've never taken a class on meditation and I, i've always hated the idea of it i see you i see you giving tr- <laughs> hard time there but it's text i never your mom text your dad i meditate. never i never liked the idea of meditation until i just started doing it the way that felt right to me i'm like making it up as i go so i do these stupid little things to be like oh you're just true and it's just a day because at the end of the day, what I really am is a guy that has to do all these things and feel for everybody and feel everybody else's things and develop all these feelings and write all these emotions. And, and that is really draining. So if I don't make the time to call my mom or my dad or or make sure I'm connected with friends in some way, then I will. It's a slippery slope. And being an artist is a very addictive thing. So I just make sure I don't get so sucked into the addiction of, of what being an artist feels like because you start feeling a little too powerful or something you're you're it's all it's so masturbatory being an artist is such a jerk off it really oh my god it really is i thought about this the other day we were taking a walk being an artist is totally addictive because partially because of the idea of getting attention is equally as addicting as the sensation of paying attention both which you receive if you are practicing an art in my opinion, if you're performing for other people. But it's it's so easy to get sucked into the rabbit hole of getting attention because it's more instant gratification. You get that dopamine hit. It feels really good. You got all your social media bullshit and you know, you post videos or you post pictures and you know, all of your hashtag blah blah blah, you know, you get this instant gratification hit. But it's so hard, I feel like, for artists to remain in the second camp to remind themselves, whether it's the text or whether it's having a practice that that you're taking care of your, your mind to retain that element of paying attention because that's just as, if not more rewarding, being in that flow state, being in that special spot where everything is just feeling yeah. perfect. No, it's right, that's right. I think people cling to the idea of the tortured artist and there's such a romantic idea behind what that, resembles and what that might look like or sound like to people. And I'm very guilty of being that guy, especially when I was really trying to cut my teeth and, and you know, I'd be so proud of myself if I went days without sleeping because I was on like a writing bender and like that was so cool to me. But now it's like my knee hurts 
and shit sucks and like taxes and you know what I mean? Like now, now it's now it's not about that grind and, and being addicted to what a tortured artist feels like. And like, it was so easy to get out of a relationship because you could always be like, the work is killing me, man. You don't get me. But man, being an artist can be th this thing that kills you or it can be this thing that fuels you. And, and whether it's, if you're going for the applause Sure, that is part of what is addictive about being an artist. But when I think of what being an artist really means, it's about leaving something here that either resonates with people or says a whole lot about who you are when you go. My addiction becomes a lot more about legacy than it does about instant gratification. And I figured that out in the long term. And a lot of artists, and I think, you know, Laura, I think you and I even talked about this. I, I, I talk to other artists about this all the time. That instant gratification thing is going to make you so unsatisfied because that's a job. We don't want jobs. That's why we're artists. We want a career, though. And that is that's a much longer haul. Go for the career, not the job. That instant gratification bullshit. Oh, I'm so sorry. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> All good. Sorry. All good. It's fine. That, that instant gratification stuff, that's why so many artists drop out or quit the business. I laugh when someone says, I'm quitting the business. I go, okay, but you gave it a year. You gave it one, one quick shot and then you're out. I feel like timing is everything and I think patience is everything. And I don't think I would have learned that had I not stuck it out long enough to learn that. Because of course I was all about instant gratification. The addiction shifts, in other words. For me, as an artist, and I, I think for most artists, they will see that the addiction shifts. You're addicted to some aspect of being an artist, but what that aspect is keeps evolving as you mature and have a better grasp of how the career itself works. So you know what I love about what you just said? I don't know if you know who Seth Godin is, but Seth Godin is a, a marketing kind of genius guru guy. And, and one of his things is that, that no matter what you do in life, you're an artist, right? That it's the act of, of creating is the act of creating art. And, and what I love about what you just said is if I take away the fact that you produce Broadway musicals, everything you said is, I think, for anyone who is a creator in life, meaning in you know any form that if you, if you are not satisfied with just showing up and punching the clock, if you are going to work and, and doing something meaningful, important, every single person, if they strip away and forget that you're this Broadway musical guy, they will relate to that, right? right? It was dead on. And I love your tips about how to, how to address it. So I, Shane, I don't know where you were going to go, but, but I was curious, this is a technobiotic is the name of this, right? I, I'm curious about the impact of technology on kind of what you do now and oh. on how you see it shaping the future of musical theater, which is probably the play, one of the places where we think that we don't aren't going to have that grave an impact, but I'm curious what, what you see. It's uh, it's a really interesting landscape right now. And I think we're all very aware that the landscape changes so fast. It's hard to like get used to how things are right now. The music business and the theater business, we're all trying to keep up with the advancements of technology. For Broadway in particular, it's very interesting. You have a, uh, the, there's a musical adaptation of Beetlejuice. It's a huge hit on Broadway right now. And certainly one of the reasons the tickets are selling to a certain demographic is because of TikTok. This app that had nothing to do with musical theater until the Beetlejuice cast started going viral with their things that they were doing. And now there's a younger audience who knows the show through TikTok trying to come to the show. So I think, like Shane said, technology is very much a double-edged sword, especially in the field of the arts. I look at it as a really positive and great thing because it creates an enormous platform to share what I'm obsessed with. The legacy and the things, you know, I'm killing myself to create these damn things. And I don't know who they're for all the time, but I want them out there. I always think that content is king. And if you have something worth sharing, there's probably a reason for that. And stories need to be told, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the streaming devices, I think it's great. All those platforms are wonderful. How everybody gets paid, I think, is a little questionable right now. But that's why I think Broadway in specific, because of technology, Broadway is one of the only industries, especially in the entertainment industry, where even in the, the height of the apocalypse, which we're all living through right now, the numbers are going up. This billions of dollars a year business is going up because people are thirsty for that human connection, not necessarily the technological part of it. Maybe technology led them to get that, connect, uh, that human connection in the first place, but shows are lasting longer, shows are selling out, people are getting new chances to create new work on Broadway, and we're getting younger audiences because we're doing what my entire umbrella statement is here. We're bridging the gap. 
So I think because of those platforms, we have a much easier way to make musical theater accessible. And that's what's really exciting about technology and as it develops within our community is that it creates a lot of excess uh, or access for <laughs> and excess uh, for all the theater fans and people who don't realize they're that they are theater fans yet. You know what I mean? I think deep down everybody loves musical theater, but they have to really get a good taste before they fully commit to being a fan. I'm going to agree with you there. And, and there's a couple things I want to circle back on. So first I'll talk about my experience and my introduction to musical theater and oh. theater in general is, you know, I grew up a poor kid in a blue collar community in Western Pennsylvania that if you didn't work in a factory, you didn't work. Right. right? So uh, I couldn't get out of that city fast enough when I hit 18 and, and could get out of there. But while I was there, musical theater wasn't a thing, you know, in the neighborhoods I grew up in. Uh, and we're tap know, dancing in shows. these factories. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll get I'll get there, Drew. Um, oh. yeah, picture 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 all this in a set of tap <laughs> shoes at 16 years old, right? Um, so I so I actually. Wine, no, but <laughs> but but really, so I ended up going to. Uh, well, I'll rewind a little bit. Uh, I ended up dating a girl. Uh, which in, you know, many cases, that's what leads most of us to discover things that we're interested in is, you know, someone we're interested in is interested in something. So suddenly we're very interested in that. So I was dating a girl and she was a, a ballet dancer, jazz dancer, uh, into basically most of the classical dance forms and very into musical theater. And she introduced me to theater. And I ultimately ended up going to the same high school she was in, which was uh, a standard high school, but also had a very large performing arts element to it. Mm -hmm. And I got really exposed to theater, creative arts and all of those things as a part of it and realized how much it spoke to me in ways that I hadn't connected to before. And, uh, you know, like Charlie, I'm not necessarily a artist. I do actually do a lot of creation. We work in a very intangible world in, in the digital and technical worlds. And so I know most of us end up having some sort of hobbies or things where we create things, whether it's art, whether it's, you know, furniture, whether it's something, we create physical things to make up for the fact that we get compensated for creating these intangible things. Right. And I get far more satisfaction for myself and the in things where I can create something, give a piece of that legacy than I do in many of these intangible things that I do. But, you know, bringing it back to the, to the, to the story, that was my introduction to theater. And, and you're right. People I think at heart are fans of not just theater, but art in general. And it's only when they become exposed to it that do they recognize that and realize that. Mm -hmm. So that that's kind of the first piece of the thing I wanted to, to unpack is I, I wholeheartedly agree with you on that. And people just need to go see a damn show. The second thing <laughs> is you talk about how there's billions and billions of dollars pouring into the arts and that industry. And I'm going to jump on a soapbox here and say, support your damn friends, support the creatives in your life, pay them. Yes. Don't listen to their stuff on Spotify. Don't listen to their, their stuff on YouTube, yes. put money in their hands, go to their yes. websites, buy their t-shirts, show go up to their, their shows. shows. Yeah. You know, if it's an art show, show up to their show. If they're just jumping on stage for spoken words, show up, pay the cover, do what you can to put money into their pockets because without that support, there will be no art. Yep. Right. So that that's the soapbox part of the rant. See so many of my creative friends, you know, literally killing themselves, hustling their asses off, creating amazing things. And at the end of the day, they're left with a legacy. But oftentimes that legacy is 20 years shorter than it should be because they never had the resources to continue to do those. Right. Things. Absolutely. So, that's my rant. So bringing it back to technology, and you talked about a couple things about, you know, TikTok. That, that was actually amazing to me to realize that TikTok has actually driven a different generation of folk to the theater. Yeah. What for you, you know, in terms of how you use technology to, to get your art out there into the world, what, what are kind of the greatest platforms that you're using today? And, and what is that doing to drive connectedness to you and the people around you? So I, I think that uh, back in the day, it used to be just like write a song at the piano and record it on a tape recorder and then like show somebody the the you singing over a piano like that's all that's all that's what a composer lyricist was they wrote the music and the lyrics they didn't have to think of the flourishes nowadays because of the technological advancements producers who you submit these songs to they need a very fleshed out sound they need a very full ass sounding thing so there's two ways I, I look at this. It's how I share it with my employers and it's how I share it with the general public. 
When it comes to my employers, I use Logic. I use all these great recording softwares. GarageBand is actually a really kick-ass program, and it's like comes with every computer nowadays. So like, if you're trying to record music, kiddos, GarageBand is a-okay. Um, but it helps me create like a really rock solid, I say it in quotes, demo, but it sounds like a full orchestrated song. I'm adding strings and flutes and piccolos and all kinds of fully really embellished flourishes to the song. So it sounds like a fully orchestrated thing. And there, that way the producer has no questions for me afterwards. There's no, where were all the violins? Which is a note I get more often than I care to share. And then when it <laughs> comes to- played violin in third grade, you can never have enough violin. You can never have enough violin. That's right. And I, I take that note to heart. Don't worry. It's going to be a lot of violin and Karate Kid just for you, Shane. <laughs> but the way, you know, with platforms like SoundCloud and things like that, it just makes it easier to share songs. Sometimes you write a song and you're thrilled with it and you want everybody else to get excited about it right away. And the old school way of doing it was invite friends to a show. Come hear my new stuff. I've got a whole set of new songs. Now you can just share it. And that excites them to come to the show. It's like creating your your uh, really easy, uh, easily accessible calling card for your own stuff. And I think that's another thing that technology has made easy for artists is the comparison of being an, uh, an artist is not just someone who writes music or makes art. It's anybody who's creative. But I also think being an artist is a very entrepreneurial kind of mindset. And you need to know how to be the CEO of yourself a little bit. And with these uh, technological platforms where you can share and get instant listens and instant likes and instant feedback, um, there's ways to strategize and market your own career path. So I think technology has helped me a lot in terms of what social media has done and, and how I can promote my own shows uh, and create fan groups and create hype for myself when no one else is going to do it. You know, eventually the career takes off and now I've got people helping me out and life's all hunky-dory. But when you're just starting out, there's nothing better than the internet and all the technology that comes with what we have today for a young, just starting artist who's trying to get, trying to inch their way into a very oversaturated market. The internet is our friend. So that's, there's, there's my big technological spiel. And so I'm, I'm curious about something, you know, you, you've mentioned several times during our conversation here, the, 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 the about your legacy and, and about how that's kind of sort of the, your new addiction. And, and I think it's, it's, it's real. I mean, so, you know, Shane was talking about how important art is. I was the president of, of the arts council of Temecula Valley years and years ago, wow. a small community way east of Los Angeles. And we were interviewing a potential candidate and we said, well, why do you want to be in the Arts Council? And he says, well, in the, you know, in the history of the world, great civilizations come and go and the things we remember are their art, you know? And, and I thought it was, this, he, he turned out to be kind of a weird guy, but it was a great <laughs> quote and a great statement. And I think it's very, very true. And, and so, but I find it interesting because I don't know if you remember that we even met, but the, the night we met, I was actually sitting next to you at this uh, event for, what was his name? Darren. And got talking, and as we walked out, Laura goes, "You knew who that was," and it's like, "I have no idea who that was," you know. And and she then played some of your songs. Oh, oh I know who that is, you know. And, and but I think that, and, and and I say that because I once had a, a colleague of mine send me one of my own articles saying, "Hey, you should read this great article, Charlie," and I wrote it back and said, "Yeah, I know, I wrote it." And, but I think as creators, this is one of the challenges that that you know. We, we want that legacy. We want the recognition, the attention, as you said it right. But but we also have to give everything into that art that, to the point that sometimes people don't even realize it's us that have, have created this. That and is I don't know, true. Is that, do you, how do you manage that? How do you, does it bother you? I mean, what do you do? Uh, less than less. I've, I've taken up smoking pot from time to time. And there, because of that, I'll, I'll care less about things like that. <laughs> otherwise, I'll be up all night. You know, like, it, otherwise, it really does become a selfish endeavor when the legacy part that's important to me is just making sure that I've left something tangible behind i've left i've left evidence of of my existing even if my name's not attached to it i know that there'll be uh, dozens and dozens of songs that i've written somewhere and there's already great proof of that uh for me at least with like the number of people singing my stuff a lot of people don't even realize it's my stuff but they're posting videos of them singing this song by this guy i know it's this guy i know who this guy is i'm this guy and if I can see that while I'm alive, then that's great. If I don't see it, at least I know that there already is evidence of something I've done left behind. That's all it is. I just wanted, I, I just wrote a song. I not just wrote a song. A couple years ago, I wrote a song. And one of the lyrics is, hello, my name is Drew. I've been working so damn hard on writing something worth a damn. 
And I think that's all I'm trying to do. It doesn't need to be the best Drew song. It just needs to be something worth listening to for anybody who chooses to listen to it. We can't be choosy about our art if we're the creator. We can't we can't expect everybody to like what we do, and we can't expect everybody to acknowledge the work we put into it. They just can, all they can do is acknowledge that it's there at the very least. So that's where my expectations lie. And uh, this has been a PSA for the plant marijuana. Thank you. <laughs> Drew for president. <laughs> Drew for president. <laughs> Excellent. So, so Drew, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's Absolutely. it's actually been a really great conversation. And, and uh, I hope actually in the future you think about joining us again once uh, once you get uh, Karate Kid launched. And, Please, you know, yes, or, invite me, invite me, invite me. I had a great time. Don't don't forget this small little podcast that interviewed you before you know, your wild success with Karate Kid. You know, <laughs> when you're out there posting, you know, posing for, you know, crane pictures with your fans, remember, <laughs> remember us. We'll have oh, you I'm back. I'm already exhausted at that idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's really a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think this is definitely going to be definitely going to be uh, something that, that I'm going to remember for some time to come. Charlie, Laura, Charlie, thank you for being a guest host today. I appreciate you jumping into the fray for us. Laura, thank you for a great conversation as always. And before before we hang up, is there any you were, we're talking about, you know, promoting your friends. Is there anything live and in person that we can go to see? And if you're in the New York City, Manhattan, tri-state area? Wow, sure. I love a plug. Um, there's a couple, if, if you want to go see Beetlejuice, by the way, it's running on Broadway and it's really good. And my best friend and writing partner, Alex Brightman, plays Beetlejuice and he's fantastic in it. If you're out in the country somewhere and you happen to see the tour of the Frozen musical, my best friend, my other best friend, F, is playing the snowman in that, Olaf. So go check him out in that. Every last Monday of the month, I do a series at Rockwood Music Hall called Drew Gasparini and Friends, where I showcase a brand new writer and all of the money goes to charity for the arts. So that's every last Monday of the month, Drew Gasparini and Friends. And on April 13th, I'm releasing the licensing rights and the cast album to my new musical, We Aren't Kids Anymore, which is a semi-autobiographical song cycle. Uh, starring five amazing Broadway singers. Uh, and there's going to be press release for that coming out, I think, tomorrow. So there'll be more on that. Excellent. And we will make sure we put links all of that in the show notes so that people Love know it. where to find you. Thank you. And we'll actually cut. And then Shane's going to fly out here to New York so we can all go to the premiere Karate Kid together. Yeah, you guys all have tickets. No worries. It's a plan. We'll make it happen. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.